So it is, it is crazy question time. So I just want you to pause for a moment. I just actually want you to pivot your head around and look at the people around you. Just do that. Just look, look at them. All right, you see them? All right, so here's the crazy question. Who is the greatest person in this room? Are you not, did you see Jesus? I don't think so. So don't try to get spiritual with me. All right, so, so it, it's a crazy question, and it, it's crazy today, and it was crazy in the first century when disciples came to Jesus and they said to him, who's the greatest person? We want to know who's the greatest person. And so Jesus goes, the scripture says, Jesus goes over to what actually the little translation is a half-grown person. And he takes a half-grown, which is a child. And understand the, understand the culture, because the culture in Jesus' day was not child-centric, not children-centric as it is today in Erie, Pennsylvania. Everything's wrapped around our kids in Erie, Pennsylvania. Not so in that first century. And so the children were on the, on the, the perimeter. They're were, they were out, out on the edges. In fact, in the center of this wasn't even just adults. They were male adults. The women were out here. And it just wasn't male adults. It was Hebrew male adults. All non-Hebrews were out here. So the only nominees from the question of who is the greatest comes from these Hebrew male adults in the center of life. And Jesus, according to these guys, have to choose from one of them. And Jesus surprises them. He goes out and he brings a child and he puts the child in the center of the group. And then he says this. Truly I say to you, unless you what? Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, what I'm about to tell you will require you to turn around. Because in light of the question you just asked, you are heading the wrong direction. And you're gonna to have to turn and go the other way because what I'm about to tell you is not a normal response. And therefore, you are going to need, and everything else I'm going to tell you now, you cannot receive it and move into it unless the atmosphere, unless the culture changes and you become like a little child. So Pam and I have two grandchildren and one on the way. And so I'm a very proud grandfather, grand, uh, and I, I showed you a picture of, of Xander a couple weeks ago, and, and so now Everett has to have some equal time, and Everett's one year old, one years old, and, and Everett is learning how to walk, and, and we got a video, I'm going to show you a little clip out of it in just a moment, and, and Everett's trying to figure out how to walk, and he's stuck in a corner, and he's got one hand on the corner, and he wants to pivot, and he wants to use the other wall for balance, and he's kind of be figuring out, okay, I can balance this thing, but he can't get his arm to the wall, and if you watch closely, he, he, somehow he thinks that if he strains hard enough, his arm will extend extend longer than it is. And he'll get the wall and he'll pivot and he'll be able to, to keep his balance and here's what happens. Yeah, you can do it. You've been walking around all day. Come on. Come here. Yeah, good job. 
Okay, so that's Everett. So, so here's what Jesus says. He says, if you're going to take the teaching I'm about to give you and, and apply it to your life, you're going to have to be like Everett. You're going to have to be like a child. You're going to have to be humble. And humility has, has components to it. Humility has, first of all, vulnerability. Vulnerability means this, that I'm willing to understand that my next step is going to be difficult and I may lose my balance and I may, I may go down. I may not make it. No matter how I stretch, I may not get there and I may fall. It also in, it involves trust, which is this. If I do fall, what I need to do is crawl toward, toward the voice of love. I'll go that way. And, and thirdly, that we all need the guidance of a guardian to get us there. So Jesus is going to lead them into a part of living that requires true humility, vulnerability, trust, and the dependency on the Father because that is the nature of a covenant community. It has to be humble if we're going to accomplish what he's going to tell them next. So now watch where he goes with this. He says, okay, so you've got to be humble like this little child, and then he jumps right into this. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. Now, now, did you hear that? It is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown in the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Now, please understand that Jesus is using extreme illustration here to get a point across. He's not actually saying, go cut off your hand. And we've been, we've been looking at, in the last four weeks, and today's our fifth week, on temptation. And it comes from the word to actually mean to pierce, to go through the facade, to get through, so that you see something that, that is beyond. It, it, we, we, used, we used Adele's song, and you can finish it for me, hello from the other side, the other side exactly. <laughs> so there's, there's something that is behind. So temptation comes, it opens up, you see on the other side, and what you find is hostility. You find hostility toward God. That which is unwilling or unable to submit to him. And Jesus says, for it is necessary for those temptations to come. And so here's what we figured out. That God is going to test us by having Satan tempt us so that we can see the destructive stuff in us. Which brings us then to really just two options. We either let that stuff out and it takes control or we cut it out. And we've been talking about in these last weeks how we cut it out and get that stuff out of us. And if I had to just encapsulate it this morning, it would be Paul talking to Timothy and he said, look, when you, when you come to a temptation, here's what I want you to do. Run, Forrest, run. <laughs> Go. Just turn and run. Where do you run? Well, James, the bishop of of Jerusalem, an elder in the church, makes it really clear. He says, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So here's the deal. When you meet a temptation, 
you turn and run. Now we have this tendency, we who are followers of Jesus, as he forgives us for our sins and says there's still stuff in there that we need to take care of, the temptation comes, and instead of running, we do this with the temptation because it has felt so good in the past and it's become very habitual to us and, it, and it's a temporary fix and it kind of deadens the pain of life sometimes. And so we still really want to do that thing. And instead of turning and running, instead of seeing it and going this way, what we do is we look at it and go, oh, I'm going to miss you so much. I just, I would just, if I could just, and I would, and we just keep looking. And he says, no, 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 you turn and you blitz. Now, where do you run? He said, you run to God and you submit to his embrace. You run to him. That's what these last four weeks have been about. And here's the deal. Satan doesn't, he, he doesn't fear you. He fears you embraced by God. And when he sees that, Satan turns and runs. Now here's the problem within this community of faith. What if someone around you doesn't do that? They don't turn and run, but instead they walk into the temptation. How do we deal with that? Well, what is the nature of the community the covenant community. What is its nature? We've already said it. It's one of humility. And humility is necessary if we're going to deal with this because here's what happens. Temptation entertained. Walking into it and enjoying it often fractures relationships. See, when I involve myself in sin, it's not just me and sin. My involvement in sin affects the relationships that surround me. It's never a solo act. Because what happens is the temptation pierces. I find stuff that is hostile to God. It will not or cannot submit to God. And as I do that, you think that hostility is just dealing with me and God? That hostility starts coming out and it starts dealing with the people who are in relationship with me and they begin to feel the impact of that hostility. And what we want to do when someone is sinning, someone who is involved in giving their lives over to that temptation, is we want to back off because we don't like that hostility. We, we gather over here and say, ooh, look at Reisner. He's not doing well. We over here, we're doing fine. But him over there, oh, he, don't even go close to him. First of all, he'll influence us. And secondly, do you feel the hostility and the pain and the junk coming out of him? We don't want to be there. And we do that. We just pull away. Say, uh-uh, not going to deal with that. Jesus expects us to run from temptation, but not away from the tempted. And there's a big difference. So listen to, now in this context, listen to what Jesus says. His next words. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Okay, I want to go back to this. He's talked about the little ones, and in this context, the little one is anyone who's a follower of Jesus. Not just talking about kids. He's talking about the little ones, all of us who follow Jesus, the ones who have said, we've got to walk in humility, and we've got to trust you. We've got to be vulnerable. We've got to figure out how to walk right and, and take steps of faith. We're trying to figure that out. See that you do not despise. That word despise actually means to throw out of your mind. It means to look at someone who's involved in temptation and giving into sin and to just throw them out of your mind, to, to throw away people. We, we're not going to deal with them. We throw them out. He says, don't do that. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. God didn't throw them out of his mind. 
we can't throw them out of our minds either. He says, what do you think? If a man has 100 sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 in the mount and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the other, over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones, not one of them, should perish. It's not the Father's will that one of these little followers of Jesus should perish. And that word perish means that they should be lost, they should be marred, they should be fractured. It is not my desire. So you, as the community of faith, because it is your nature as humble people, that although you don't want to be near that hostility, you run from temptation, but you run to the tempted. It's your job. And do whatever you can to bring them home. I have a friend who lives in the city, and if ever I've watched a person who epitomizes this, it's this guy that when people start to disappear, when people get involved in things they shouldn't, when people start to get addicted, when they disappear from the scene, when they're going through really tough times and their life's being destroyed, this guy doesn't hang out with the community of faith and say, oh, I sure miss, you know, I miss George over here. And you know, he goes and he finds George. He had a friend who was, who was trying to get off his addiction to alcohol. And he'd been, he'd been a believer, and he's, he's, he's struggling with alcohol. And so my friend actually goes to his house, pounds on the door because he hasn't seen him for a while, and then he backs his car up to the back of the house, which, is, which is, is, it's a little lower, so he can stand on the car and look through the window. He wants to see inside. He's stalking my friend. He's stalking him, and he looks in, and he sees George passed out. He's blacked out from a drunken rage. Somehow, he breaks in the house. He gets him to a place where he'll dry out. And that is the cycle for a lot of years. But he never let him go. Even when there was deception and anger and hatred and hostility. Until the day came that there was this God moment of deliverance and his friend was set free. We are not to run to temptation, but we are to run toward temptation. But you say, well, wait, 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 but, but you don't know this person in, in, their, in their whatever they're doing become very hostile to me. You don't know what she said about me. You don't know how she badmouthed me. You don't know how, how deep he hurt me. You don't know how he ripped me off. I'm gonna tell you that temptation has multiple casualties, but it is the nature of the covenant community that we run toward the fractured. And here's my picture in my head. Usually when we read the story about he leaves the 99 and goes to get the one, we see this one solo person going to do that. But what if the entire community has the same mindset? And if George is standing over there and we all have that same sense of humility. It's not just one person, but can you see the whole community moving towards George, and because they are home, home is coming to George? Temptation entertained will fracture relationships, but community released offers healed relationships. And that's so much easier to say than it is to do. Forgiveness is a tough thing. 
Because if it was easy, everybody would be doing it, but they're not. And so what Jesus next describes can take months and even years to accomplish. And here's what he says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And he goes on and instructs how to do that even further. And at the end of that passage, he says this. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? I just love that. Where's the cutoff? Because I want to bust him. As men is seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. So if Luke here is a good Jew and I offend him, in that culture, Luke, you could forgive me three times. On the fourth time, you can bust me. But if Chloe here has the spirit of the apostle Peter, she says, wait, 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 seven times. But after the seventh time, you can have Luke bust me. Absolutely. But Jesus says, 70 times seven. And and, and here's what he's saying. He's saying, reality check. That in this covenant community of humility, 70 times seven simply means you never keep count. That's tough. So when temptation causes not only a fractured person, but a fractured relationship, we're gonna respond in one of three ways. And I wanna deal with those this morning. We have, in our condominium there where we live, because we downsized when our kids left the house, and we say we childproof our home so they couldn't come back. And so that's what we did. And so we've got, we've got a smaller place, and, and we don't have a basement. So we have a closet, a thin closet we call our basement. And that's where all the stuff goes. And when we first moved in, it was so highly organized, and it was so nice. The other day, I went in there to get a tape measure. I couldn't find my tape measure because there's so much clutter in there, it's buried. I have no idea where my tape measure is. And sometimes we'll get some really nice stuff, new things for us, new parts of life for us, and we can't put it in the basement because there is no more space. The clutter has filled up the space. When somebody offends us, we as Christians, well, oh, I'm a Christian, we will never act out. Oh, no, 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 I'm a Christian. But we will act in. We will hold a grudge. Oh, we'll, 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 you know, we'll nurse the grudge, but we'll, we'll, we'll put it in, the, in the context of a prayer request. Oh, God, you know Lucy over here? You know she's a liar. Oh, God, help her. We will. We'll just nurse the grudge. We will hold on to the wound. We rehearse what was lost. We relive the pain. And the truth is we never live past that offending moment. It is always there. So between my freshman and sophomore year in college, my freshman year I fell in love. I'm going to marry this girl in the summer. She broke up with me, and it devastated me. It was my first love, and it just destroyed me. Came back to, to, to college, and, and there she was. She was back, and that even made it worse because I saw her. And one of my closest friends started hanging out with her, and I said, what are you doing? Because, you know, I'm praying, and we're going to get back together. Shows you what kind of prophetic voice I've got. 
And so he said, oh, no, 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 I'm just, you know, she's hurting too, and I'm just walking her through it. Well, he walked her right into engagement. That's where he walked her. <laughs> and I was so, so hurt by him that you know where most of my discussions for that entire school year went? Right back to that pain. Couldn't deal with any of my needs because they were buried under this clutter. I couldn't move ahead to any other opportunity because there was no space for any opportunity. It was covered with this pain. And I couldn't get past it. So I began to realize that. So the next year, I said, I'm not going to date. I'm just going to pursue God. And in that process, he began to clean out my basement so that I could deal with other needs and so that I could see other opportunities. Resentment fills life with clutter, burying our needs and crowding out new opportunities. See, we can't get, we can't get past the unforgiven clutter. We, 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 can't, we can't see the new moments when we have resentment. And that's one of the ways we respond, by resentment. One of my favorite stories, and I have a lot of favorite stories, and this just happens to be my favorite today. You've got Jack, who is, he's a toddler, and you have Justin, who is a preschooler. And they're in their room playing, and mom is outside the room, and suddenly she hears this blood-curdling scream, and she walks in, and Jack, the toddler, has Justin, the preschooler, by the hair, just yanking it, pulling it. So she untangles the mess, and, and, and Justin goes, well, what did you do that for? And she goes, son... Please, I'm sorry, but, but Jack doesn't know better. He just doesn't know it hurts. He doesn't know better. You've got to forgive him. You've got to forgive him. He doesn't know. He just doesn't know. She walks out of the room, and suddenly she hears Jack screaming, and she walks in, and Justin says, well, now he knows. <laughs> what is our natural response when someone offends us? We want them to know how it hurts. We want to respond back. Someone commits offense against us, we're going to give them the offense because we want them to know what it feels like so they'll never do it again. How noble. Because we're going to, we're going to give out justice. Somebody should get out justice so they understand. Well, that's our problem. And the next, next thing we can do is called retribution. Retribution is a false sense of justice. Because we're really wanting justice as we get even, but we don't really want to get even. We want to get ahead. We want to do it better. And that becomes a never-ending spiral. It's presidential candidates exchanging insults like middle school boys. God help us. And I'm, I'll just step back for a moment. This is free. I'm not going to charge you for this. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for them. I'm just going to tell you this. Number one, by their fruit you will know them. And secondly, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So pay attention. I was with a group of uh, an organization that gathered together to deal with another organization that was, was attacking the organization I was part of. And, and it was getting bad. And so we're discussing what should we do? Should, should, we, should we go to the legal system? What should we, what, what should we do? How should we go through this? 
and what you know because they've said this and should we say that and 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 so this guy from the south a really wise old guy stood up and he said gentlemen I just want to remind you that when you wrestle with a skunk you can win but you're gonna come out smelling like the skunk it's exactly what what Paul the Apostle meant when he wrote, Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. If you take revenge, you may win. But you're going to come out smelling like a loser. Because here's the bottom line. None of us gets away with anything. If, if I offend you, I'm not going to get away with it. Because God, God always confronts the offense. Because he's a just God. He doesn't let us get by. And I'm thankful that it's God who confronts the offense. Because quite frankly, I am sure that I have offended people. Some of you in this room, probably I've offended you. There may be some people who have prayed, oh God, get vengeance on Reisner. Maybe my wife, I don't know. And so God comes to Reisner and he confronts me. But he confronts me with conviction, not condemnation. He confronts me with grace and mercy. He doesn't beat me, he transforms me. That's what he, what he does. Yeah, but you say, but wait, wait a minute, you got, you got away with it, nobody paid, where's the justice? We just, we just had communion. So go with me to the cross. And on that cross, you see Jesus. And if you look closely, that offense that, that I gave to you, it's beaten on Jesus. He paid for it already. Justice has been given. You say, but wait, but you don't understand what I've lost. When I was, a, it was first or second grade, I was walking to School 72 in Buffalo, New York. That's when they named schools by numbers. And, and I'm walking from our house a couple blocks down to the school, and I've got my favorite coloring book. And this teenage girl's walking the other way down the sidewalk, and for whatever reason, I don't know who she was, she stopped me, grabbed my coloring book, and began to rip it in shreds. I don't know if she had just had a bad day or what her deal was. I, I was horrified. I ran back home. My dad was in, in the house and, and crying, Dad, coming, but girl, been ripped. And he said, well, let's go find her. Vengeance is mine. So we jumped in the car. We couldn't find her. And then he did this. We went straight to the store. He bought me a much better coloring book. Bottom line, no one else's poor choices will keep our Father from giving us what He wants us to have. You're going to get it. We've lost nothing, which keeps us free from resentment and retribution and moves us to where He wants us, which is reconciliation. And reconciliation heals the fracture. But you say, I don't, you don't understand the pain. So let me talk to you a little bit about reconciliation. If you're really going to go through reconciliation, the first thing you need to do is lament. 
Own the pain, because you got hurt. Own the pain, sit in the pain, think about the pain, search the depths of the pain, see how deep the pain goes. Know what it's doing to you. Go to that pain. When Israel was abducted and moved to Babylon, it was a horrible pain. And the psalmist says, here's what they did. Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. There in the poplars, we hung our harps. We did not sing songs of worship and praise. We sat there and we wept and we searched out our pain. This is how bad this hurts. And I'm gonna tell you that you need to do that. And it helps sometimes to do that with somebody you can trust. Not somebody who's gonna be with you that's gonna egg you on and say, yeah, 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 let's get a posse and go hang them. You need somebody who's gonna walk you through the process of getting down to that pain. They didn't sugarcoat their rage. They did not ignore their bitterness. In fact, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't even stop from declaring their hatred. But going through the process, eventually they surrendered their hatred. I like this quote from Heather Kaliri. She says, lament is an audit of the heart that gives us clear-eyed understanding. That process of discernment shields our hearts from unsafe people so we can stay tender for everyone else. Because here's the deal. I meet people and, and, and they're very guarded and I start to ask them and they'll say, oh, I've been hurt by people. And now they won't talk to anybody. They won't open up to anybody. And God never wants us to get that way. So we have to go, we have to go down deep in our, in our pain and say, here's what they did. But not everybody else. Here's what they did. Remembering the pain reminds us that reconciliation is not that we have to trust the other person, not until they repent, that they turn and go the other way. Because here's the deal. If, if every time I see you, you punch me in the face, the time will eventually come that I will forgive you for the pain, but I won't forget the pain. And we were not told to forget the pain. We were told to forgive the pain. I won't forget the pain so that, that right now, when I see you again, I'm not offering my face. Oh, I forgave you. Go ahead, punch me again. Ah, I see you. I'm going the other way for right now. I've forgiven you, but I'm going the other way until you repent, until there's, there's no chance that you're going to do that again. What kind of idiot am I to run back in there? Forgiveness never said I got to go back to the abuse. I go back when there is, when there is a, a repentance, a moving the other way. And the relationship may never be the same as it was before, but there's still a connection of relationship. Lament. Work it through. Secondly, accept. You gotta accept what's done. So often we go, oh man, if they just hadn't done that, if I, I wouldn't have lost that, if they would have just, if they would have just, if, if that, if they, they would have, if they just, it's done. It's not going to change. We have to accept that. But you know what else is not going to change? God's character. Psalm 91 says this, because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. 
and with what? <coughs> Excuse me, with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. That word long life does not mean you're going to live to 132. Long life means that whatever God planned for the fullness of your life, you're going to get it all. This is not, this is not the length of years. This is the quality and the fullness of your years. Long life means that all God planned for you has not been lost. He saved it. No matter what that person did to you, he saved it. You think you lost something, he saved it. If it's for you, he saved it. So it's time for you to hit, sing that old hymn from the movie Frozen. <laughs> Which one? Let it go. And that brings you then to this third piece, and it is so unnatural. Forgive. Let me tell you why it's so unnatural. To forgive is to willfully bear and embrace a wound that someone else has given you. That, that stinks. Because I just want you to know how miserable I am because of that. I want to tell you about how horrible they are. So Jesus tells this story. He says this guy owes this king 10,000 talents. So just so you understand, 10,000 talents, that's 200,000. Say 200,000. 200,000 years of wages. The king says, I want, I want you to pay me. <laughs> 200,000. Pay you? He said, I can't pay you. The king says, okay, I'm going to sell you and your family so I get at least something. And he, he falls before the king and he pleads. And get this, the king eradicates the entire debt. 200,000 years. Now I'm thinking if, if, if that guy can do that for 200,000 years, I think PNC can give, forgive me for my mortgage, don't you? <laughs> the guy leaves the king. He runs into an old friend who owes him 100 denarii, which is 20 weeks of wages. 200,000 years of wages versus 20 weeks of wages. He grabs him, he chokes him, and says, pay up. And the guy says, I can't pay him, and he throws him in jail. The friends of the guy in jail contacts the king. The king summons the, for the forgiven man and says this, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every... Now catch this. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. See, God's expectation, as harsh as this may sound, God's expectation is a large forgiveness should transform the heart. Because Jesus' story is about us. He's about God and us and you and I. So would you take a moment? I just want you to look at the cross. Jason, I think you have a picture for us. There's Jesus on the cross. That's Jesus absorbing our pain, our sin, our shame, our brokenness. Your stuff's on there. He is willfully bearing and embracing the wound we gave him. That kind of love better transform us. And if it hasn't, then I'm telling you that we haven't embraced that forgiveness because when you embrace that forgiveness, it changes you. C.S. Lewis wrote it this way, to fail to forgive means to cut off the branch we're sitting on. 
It is to deny the very basis of our own salvation, the forgiveness of our sins. Because if we can't forgive, it means that God didn't forgive. If God forgave, then I've got to be able to forgive because that is the community I now live in. When we forgive, what we are doing is remembering the sin committed against us has already been absorbed by Jesus. And when I refuse to forgive you, I walk up to Jesus on that cross who is absorbing all of that stuff and I reach up and I pull out that offense from him and I rip it off of him and I come back to you and say, "Uh uh-uh, he didn't pay for that one. And then I have now sinned against him. I have stolen a healing. That means this, that if I forgive, all debts are paid. All debts are paid. Just say that. All debts are paid. The debt is this. Anything that we want that person to do that would make us feel better. If you would just help me get my reputation back. If you would just pay me back the money you took. If you would just admit, and this is the one that always gets me, if you would just admit that you were wrong. You've got to let go all of that. And then we move on. From April to July 1994, members of the Hutu ethnic majority in East Central African nation of Rwanda murdered 800,000 people. Mostly the Tutsi minority. It was a staggering genocide. How do you recover from that? I want to introduce you to Bernadette Kabongo. She's a victim of that genocide, her family. She's trying to heal the fracture. And as I read to you what she wrote, you're going to hear this. You're going to hear lament. You're going to hear acceptance. And you're going to hear forgiveness. She writes this. The killers, you invaded my nights. Singing your haunting lullaby, drowning other voices, choking, suffocating, numbing, Sending me to sleep. You've awakened me many mornings like an unexpected alarm, shattering my dreams, confusing, terrorizing, traumatizing. I've talked to you in tears and anger, spat on you in rage, whispered to you in sorrow, tied you in chains, thrown you in jail. I pulled you out, asking you many questions, knowing there would be no answers. And I tied you in chains again and again, round and round until the chains in my dizziness bound me to you. You and I became one, bound by the chains of hate. I knew then the choices to make. I untied the chains, letting go of those who converged on my dad, beating, pounding, leaving him dead. I untied the chains, letting go of those who propelled the grenade, scattering my brother's brains. I untied the chains, letting go of those who strangled my sister, leaving us an endless grave. I untied the chains, letting go of those who knifed my sister's throat, leaving her begging for a better death. I untied the chains, painfully, purposefully, knowing the one who said to do it 70 times 7 totally understands the depth 
of my pain. Is it time for you to untie the chains? Is it time for us to follow as little ones the guidance of our Father? Is it time to run toward the offender? Is it time to leave the 99 and find the lost one? Is it time to do all we can do to reconcile? And for some of you, you may need to take one of those three steps. Maybe your time now is that you need to lament because you haven't, and it's time. If you need to come in and sit with an elder or a pastor and walk through your lament, we'll walk with you and we will hold you safe and guard you and guide you through that. If you need to go to a counselor, we'll get you to a counselor, but it's time for you to lament, to find the depth of your pain. Secondly, it's, some of you may have lamented, and it's time for you to accept it because you just keep living it. Oh, if we just had that, if it was just this way, if it was just, you know, if they hadn't done that, then I would have this. It's time to let it go, or you will live there forever. And you will find that that whole clutter has buried your other needs and has kept you from moving to the God opportunities that are in front of you. And for some of you, you may have lamented and now you've accepted it, but now you need to forgive, which means you're still holding debt and you need to let that debt go. They owe you nothing. Jesus already paid for their offense. And Jesus will give you all that you thought that you lost. Because that's the nature of covenant community as we walk in humility. And if we can't have humility and depend on him to guide us through this, then we'll never get through this. And that is how Jesus decided that we should do life together. Would you stand? As we've walked through this today, perhaps in your, in your heart, in your mind, a face or a happening showed up. That may be the Holy Spirit telling you to finish it in great humility, vulnerability, in trust, following the guidance of your Father, God himself, to walk through the process and heal it up. Please do that. And for some of you today that have offended God and you wonder if he could ever forgive you, I've just described to you how he loves you. And if you just need to say, please forgive me, he said, I'll clean you up right now. And so my prayer for you is this. In the days and the hours to come, as the Holy Spirit reveals to you those hidden places, those painful moments, those fractures, May you come to a place that you trust the Father and by faith, even though your feelings tell you one thing, your obedience will take you another and you will walk with God to your healing. May you find healing for the depth of your pain. May you find freedom from letting go of the past and may you find great peace the forgiveness of those around you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. God bless you.